Minnesota cop. You do know you're in North Dakota, right? Must have got lost on the way to the lake. So? Where'd you say you saw old Skip? At your mother's house. I think going in the back door. I like him. I like you. Met another fellow from Minnesota yesterday. Big guy, sheriff, I think. I liked him too. We're very friendly people. No, that's not it. Pretty unfriendly, actually. But it's the way you're unfriendly. How you're so polite about it. Like you're doing me a favor. I had a dream about this place. ghost stories for the end of the world. Our aim for this episode and the next is to offer you a broad overview of the investigation into Olaf Palme's assassination. And tonight we are going to discuss the more technical forensic aspects of the case and how the police responded in the hours immediately following the murder. We'll also take a look at some rather unnerving witness accounts that have been dismissed and buried for years. Then next week, we're going to get into the politicking and intrigue inside the police and the government. And we're going to examine the main leads and theories that emerged in the days and weeks and months and years afterwards. And throughout all of this, we'll be asking what this can tell us about the motivations of the government and the secret state, and if there are any lessons that we can learn from these dark years in Sweden. Now, there were a few scheduling hiccups while we were putting these together, so it's only myself and Marcus of the Return of the Repressed podcast for this part of the story. Sebastian will be rejoining us for part five, I believe. Now that said, he did a lot of work with us on these two installments and he gave us a superb foundation to build off so you know big thanks to him and with all that said turn down the lights burn a little incense and levitate with us as we journey back to sweden 1986 Police made a series of errors in the immediate aftermath of the Palm shooting. The hunt for the shooter began with four deviations from the regulations, which occurred within a few minutes. The first alarm of gunfire came to the radio operator UH at SBC, and that is the uh, Sambandscentralen, basically the uh, central of communication for police activity. From Järfälla taxi at 23.23, against instructions, he quickly cut the connection with the taxi operator. Point number two. He did not call an ambulance, even though he was told that a person had been shot. Point number three. UH failed to inform the inspector on duty, who was the supervisor of the radio operators. Point number four. He failed to start a record-keeping that should take place in all serious crimes. 
Here it is important to remember that at this time the SBC had not been officially informed that the murder victim was Olof Palme. The senior officer at SBC was very passive in his leadership role. He waited 15 minutes after learning that the victim was Olof Palme before he even started to contact his superiors. Alarms should always be sent out as quickly as possible and repeated in the event of major incidents. This did not happen when the Prime Minister was murdered. The first entirety call to the Stockholm police was not made until 5.14am. Before this time and after the murder, so, you know, if you think, okay, so maybe they're saving that, <laughs> you know, that maybe uh, an entirety call is a very, very exclusive thing, you know, maybe it only happens in case of an invasion or something, but no. Because before this time and after the murder, SBC had issued seven entirety calls in other cases, including drunk driving, attempted robbery and burglary. Yet they wait basically five and a half hours to send one out for the killing of the prime minister, which, uh, yeah, that, that makes very, very little sense. It took until 2.05 a.m. before the national alarm was sent out. So this is more than two and a half hours after SBC had been informed that Olof Palme was the victim. And this was despite repeated attempts by the emergency services to get the control center to send out the national alarm much earlier. The search for Olof Palme's killer was understaffed at the control center throughout the night. And at no stage did more than two operators, and at one point only one, work full-time on the murder, even though the rules require at least three people for much simpler offences. Yeah, and it's strange here that the uh, we were talking about this before, and we are not quite sure why it is that a national alarm goes out at 2.05, which is about three hours before there is an entirety call or an entirety alarm to the Stockholm police. Uh, it, obviously, it should be the other way around, and they should obviously go out a lot quicker. I mean, what this basically means is that all trains to and from uh, Stockholm were open and unsupervised, and Arlanda Airport, which is just about, well, t- 20, 40 minutes away, uh, was operating as, as if nothing has happened. And we're not even done with the strangeness of this uh, the first few hours of this uh, of this event. Uh, there is actually a really good book, like if somebody wants to get really into the weeds of this, there's a book called Inside the Labyrinth, which is about 800 pages long. And the first 500 pages or so goes through basically the first half hour to uh, give you an idea of like, you know, how, how, how detailed you can get if you want to uh, regarding calls being made and things not being made, etc., etc. Yeah, No search for the killer was organized by the SBC. The, uh, again, that is the control center. The police officers in the field had then to search for the killer at random, using their own heads and improvisation. No police patrol knew what other patrols were doing or had already done. But the officers on the ground did the best they could in the absence of leadership and coordination. Well, at least we will assume that some of them were doing that. And some uh, might have had other motives. And so, uh, I mean, in practice, again, this means that some sites were searched many times and some sites were never searched. uh, Because, I mean, if you leave every uh, police and, you know, radio car and PK bus to to do its thing, obviously, yeah, there's going to be no coordination. During the night of the murder, an initial crime scene investigation was carried out in and around the murder scene. This hour-long investigation began at 1.10am, which is almost two hours after the murder, and it was carried out by detectives Marcus Börje Moberg and Torsten Kviberg. Yeah. (laughs) And after 20 years at the technical division, they'd earned a reputation as some of Sweden's most skilled crime scene investigators. Uh, They led the work. No bullets were found at all. That's a very key thing to keep in mind here. 
the crime scene was also very poorly secured as well. So witnesses were allowed to wander off before being interviewed and crowds of people were allowed to gather and, you know, lay flowers and contaminate the area in the days afterwards. The ceiling of the crime scene is so narrow, so tight that you could basically reach in and sort of touch the spot of the uh, yeah, where the blood was. I would recommend actually that any listeners who don't know what this looked like, you can Google uh, image search uh, the crime scene quite easily. I wouldn't recommend looking at the blood and stuff, but just to get a feel for how close the crowds were allowed to get to the spot where Olaf Palme was actually shot. And the fact that, I mean, what, within a day, the actual place where he fell had been buried under roses. <laughs> so, yeah, good luck finding anything usable after that. Right. And you're not going to be finding any footprints either. And I think when the dog... Uh... When the dog patrol arrives, I mean, there's been so many people there already that there's really no point in even using a, dr a dog to try to, you know, pick up a, a scent uh, for the dog to follow the killer or anything like that. So, yeah, it was uh, a shit show, basically, in terms of uh, standard procedure. This is the two big questions, right? Like, is this all just a fuck up? Like, is it all just... Uh, incompetence and uh, is it all uh, uh, are people paralyzed by the fact you know that uh, Olof Palme the prime minister has been killed and you know is, is this the reason why things are going astray or is there um, another reason for this taking place you know is it intentional was the dog fucked with malice aforethought or was it fucked by mistake <laughs> so the Swedish Secret Service, the SAPO, uh, kept a deliberately low profile in the aftermath of the killing and left the investigation to the police. Just very quickly, what does SAPO stand for? There are going to be a lot of anacronyms in this episode as well, guys. So we'll do our best to try and explain what they mean as we go along. So it's, uh, it's too, uh, it's actually, it could just be SP. Uh, because it's Sakriets police, like basically, which is uh, yeah, a very Germanic uh, term, right? Like Sicherheitspolizei, right? Sakriets police. Are they literally called the secret police? Yeah, <laughs> that's the name. Uh, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, S A P O. So yeah, so uh, uh, I mean they're not beating around the bush, right? <laughs> I mean, hats off. I. I guess the honesty is refreshing if nothing else yeah i mean yeah that, i think many times uh it, that that's my usually my uh, final conclusion on many of the names yeah we were talking about earlier right the t bureau and and you know all these uh uh just abbreviations right ib okay with those we don't know what they stand for really but like at the same time there is something quite appealing about the simpleness of everything sort of uh, how it, how it's organized um so they keep a deliberate low profile. Um, PGN Nas, the head of counterintelligence, claims that Sapo stayed in the background. Josta Velander, deputy county police chief in Stockholm, has stated that the head of the terrorist squad, Alf Karlsson, uh, and that's another than person of the Sapo, was, quote unquote, all the time in SPSE uh, as a liaison officer. So that is at the control center, right? Yeah, so they're kind of haunting the control center of the spooks. They are. Throughout the night. They are not, as they say, uh, you know, leaving the investigation to the police. They are there from the beginning, like minutes. Uh, Carlson himself uh, claims that he never set foot in the SBC. However, and Carlson again, this is Alf Carlson, terrorist squad guy. However, SAPO Commissioner Christer Granqvist has also stated that Alf Carlson went to the command center at an early stage. Sapo uh, chief Sven-Oke Hjelmroth has stated that he only learned of the murder at 1am, although Sapo had known since 11.40. Uh, so, like, you know, <laughs> why wouldn't he be informed? Like, <laughs> he's the chief of Sapo. <laughs> it's bullshit. Many, many halls appear yeah, in this. Yeah. So, uh, Jelmrud says that after going to the police station, he went over to uh, SBC at about uh, 1.50. So, 
this information is contradicted by Åke Rimborn, who at Sabbatsberg Hospital was the police officer who first questioned Lisbeth Palme. Uh, he says that when he returned to SBC, he first reported to Hjelmrot uh, and other hospital staff in a separate room at the hospital. This took place with uh, considerable, considerable probability shortly after 1 a.m. at the latest. There are several other indications that suggest that Hjelmrot was on site much earlier than he himself has wanted to admit. You know when I'm um, saying SAPR, because that would be my natural, you know, like FBI or CIA or MI5 or something. Read it like SAPO. 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 Yeah. Right, okay, cool. Another much more serious explanation could be that it was SEPO that in practice led the work at the control center and deliberately controlled the operation in a way that made the search for Olaf Palme's murderer more difficult. It's well documented that there was a deep distrust of Olaf Palme and his political activities within SEPO at that time. I refer you to the last two episodes for more information on that. So by way of summary, um, I cribbed this from The Guardian, quote, Squads of police tore around looking for the gunman, but had almost no information about what he might look like. Trains, ferries, and flights continued as normal, while the roads and bridges out of the city remained open for hours after the murder. That is, uh, that is a strange modus operandi by, uh, well, then a joint operation of the secret police and the uh, Stockholm public police crime unit or heavy crime unit yeah uh i mean one really wonders sort of uh you know what to think of this and i think it will become a little bit more clear we suggested already i think it was in the very first episode that there seems to be uh i mean we know that there always is a, a contradiction between the uh, secret police of any nation and the public police since they have uh, well, sometimes conflicting interests in how the repressive apparatus should allocate its funds, right? Like everybody wants to have more money than the others, right? Say so the same, I guess, uh, in America, you often hear things about, you know, how federal law often conflicts with state law and things like that, right? And and any uh, any particular department of the repressive state apparatus is going to want to have uh, its agenda and its view of the world pushed so that they can, you know, be put, you know, put themselves in the light that they are the ones who are going to solve the problems. Like they state the problems, they're going to solve the problems. And so we will see the same thing popping up later when we start going through the first, uh, uh, with the first leads that start popping up then. Once things becomes a bit more organized uh, Monday morning of the first week after the murder. But before we do that, we want to go through the forensics, right, Matt? That's what we want to do. So the cops spent seven hours examining the murder scene on Sverwegen using, uh, among other things, metal detectors. They conducted a grid search of the area, and among the items that they found was a button from Olaf Palme's shirt. There were no spent cartridge cases uh, found at the scene. Um, that I think they'd already established by this point that it was a revolver that the guy had fired yeah, and I think uh, I think also these seven hours. This is not seven hours directly after the murder that they start doing this. It's spread out. Yeah, yeah. They, they sort of pack up at like around three or or two or something. It's very lackadaisical. So uh, just to that point as well about this issue of so when you fire a gun, a gat, it will eject shells like after the bullet has been fired. But obviously with a revolver, um, those shells those cases stay inside the barrel um so that's why they they were having trouble finding anything detective Barry Mulberry is of the firm opinion uh, that there could not have been a bullet at the scene at that time he was therefore surprised when he learned that on march the 2nd uh, a full 37 hours uh, after the murder a private individual had found a bullet just a few steps from the very spot where the prime minister fell in the street where they had been searching without being able to find the slightest trace of a bullet. The bullet, which is described as the one that was intended for and even injured Lisbeth Palme, uh, was also found by a private individual. It was found seven hours after the murder 
and thus before the police uh, uh, record crime scene investigation outside the, the Vingresor store uh, on the other side of Sveavägen, about 40 meters from the murder scene. As an illustration of the difficulties in establishing exactly how the bullets were found, who found them, when they were found. Um, the New York Times reported in 1986, so this is in the, the days immediately following the shooting, that one of these bullets had actually been found in snow that the police had collected from the area and then melted down. So, yeah, make of that what you will. Yeah, that's a that's an odd one. I think what they did was that they, they went through the entire street, right, and sort of, uh, well, with some kind of machine, I guess, collected all the snow around there and they brought it to some place and melted it down and then went through everything that they found in that melted snow. That's how I understood that. Uh, yeah. There's also another really strange story about the bullets. Uh, I, re- I listened to an interview with uh, one of the authors of that book, which I mentioned earlier, the Inside the Labyrinth, uh, by Putin. And I think he's, I can't, it's, it's a Finnish name, so it's a bit tricky to pronounce, but... Uh, uh, he says that he interviewed a man. I can't quite remember why this man was interviewed. He was in uh, uh, one of the high security prisons anyway uh, in, in Sweden. And I, he, for some reason, he had something to do with the, the murder. I can't remember if he, was, uh, uh, if he was at one point a suspect or like a li- part of another lead. Anyways, what he uh, said to this author in the, <laughs> in the interview was that uh, that those two bullets came from a gun that he had shot uh, two months earlier at a New Year party. I mean, it, his, the story, his story sounds a bit strange, uh, the way he tells it. I mean, I don't... First off, why... why I, I, because he lives quite far away. He lives in Vasastan, which, I, I mean, they can travel that far, I guess, if you shoot it up in the air, uh, and then, you know, that they would land somewhere over there. Uh, but uh, it's a bit strange, but it gets even stranger because later then he is found uh, having taken an overdose inside the prison. Uh-huh. And the author says that when he met him, he didn't show any signs of being, you know, a user whatsoever. Uh, so, hmm. <laughs> yeah, that m- makes his strange story even stranger, obviously. Can't get away from that. And then there's also... Um the the chain of custody as well after the bullets were found that's also very murky uh there's a guy alfred Tavares. he uh found the lisbeth bullet or this is this is another version that i've seen that he found the lisbeth bullet and he said to have immediately handed it over to the police personnel at the scene uh the person with ultimate responsibility for the forensic investigation was inspector uh winston lange yeah vincent lange yeah, he was the head of the police's technical department. So when he arrived at the scene, the bullet had already been transported to the police station, which was contrary to his explicit orders. He wanted to try and get his hands around the forensics as quickly as possible. So even though he sent an order ahead of his arrival saying, keep the bullets there so I can see what's happening with them, someone took it on themselves to countermand that order and send it mm. to the police station anyway. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, do they not even clean the bullets then as well? Which I also like, I don't get it. <laughs> Why do they? Yeah, there are so many strange decisions that are made here. Um, and also quite a lot of, not to sound like, you know, uh, a cop lover or something, but like there's a lot of kind of insubordination, you know, in, in strange passive aggressive <laughs> ways throughout yeah. like the first few hours uh, of locking down the crime scene, people just not doing their jobs or doing it in such a shitty half-assed way. It's like they've got a problem, you know, with with following an order or something. Yeah, or that they uh, might have, you know, they might be answering to another authority, perhaps. Yeah, they they may well be following other orders. Fair yeah. point. Fair yeah, point. yeah, we will see a little bit like uh, what sort of phalanx or factions. Uh, existed within uh, the police later yeah. when, we, when we start getting into uh, interesting police officers. Uh, and so uh, Elisabeth uh, Bellish, uh, I guess, Bellic, who uh, about 30 hours later made her find at the concrete pillar 
Så det sitter jag där budgeten. Located at the intersection of uh, Sojavägen Tunnelgatans eastern exit to the Rådmansgatan subway station. It's also said to have immediately handed uh, her bullet number two then to a police officer at the scene. And uh, Stockholm's uh, police technical department was, ab- was able to establish that the two bullets were of the same type and manufactured by Winchester. In this context, for some reason, Per Arvidsson, then a 25-year-old director of uh, the Swedish Defense Material Administration, the FMV, uh, assisted the police. Uh, at least that is what he claims in a letter to his head of department in which he was asked to explain his relationship with the right-wing extremist arms dealer Carl Gustav Östling. Uh, During the autumn of 1996, it had been revealed that both the Stockholm police and the military had been buying weapons and equipments from C.G. Östling for a long time, even though he lacked an arms dealer's license and had even been convicted of illegal possessions of weapons. Now, one can really ask how it came about that the police let a young FMV, so that again, that's a resource stab of the military officer, who seems to have had no other connections to the Stockholm police uh, than that he was a good friend of Östling, and like him and other police and military officers, was a member of the secret Stockholm Defense Shooting Association, that he was then to take care of the delicate investigation uh, of these so important bullets. In any case, the two bullets that have gone down in history as the Palme bullets are 158-grain metal-piercing Winchester Western bullets for a 357 Magnum with marks from five right-handed booms with a width of about 2.5 millimeters. Now, neither of these two fully jacketed armor-piercing bullets shows any noticeable signs of having been deformed, which is curious considering that a revolver bullet of this type is fired at an initial velocity of about 400 meters per second. So this means that the kinetic energy of the bullets was almost entirely eliminated by the frictional resistance of the clothing and bodies of the people being shot at. The cops ended up test firing about 500 Magnum revolvers um, trying to sort of replicate um, the the bullet's trajectories and trying to figure out, you know, the, the deformation and all lack of mm-hmm. in this case. Yeah. Uh, and they also began a search for 10 guns of the same make that had been reported stolen at the time of the shooting. In the end, they found them all. The only one they couldn't find belonged to a Swedish director called Arne Sukstof. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Sukstorf. Sukstorf. Yeah. There we go. And then we have a man referred to uh, in the Swedish press in 2006 as a 76-year-old timber merchant. He came forward and said that he'd found a revolver while he was on a fishing trip with his family in... Muschön. Muschön. Yeah. So it's a lake. A lake, yeah. And he says that he sold the gun to a drug dealer called... Sigvard Sedegren, who is supposed to have confessed on his deathbed that he'd lent it to a friend of his who was a low-level crook called Krista Pettersson in 1986. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Well, also, I guess we will definitely return to uh, this other man, you know, of the resource stab, or we might not get back to him in particular, but definitely his friend, Uh, the police officer Östling, the right-winger, because he's a sort of... uh, He seems to be uh, uh, the spider in a web of uh, fascist police officers who, strangely, all... um, Well, they're all on site in one way or another or very much, you know, in the presence or in the periphery of this event. If these bullets are the right ones, they took a strange journey, to say the least, before landing in places so close to the crime scene. They should, according to experienced analysts, have ended up much further away. In this case, therefore, they must have ricocheted hard off the pavement or walls, uh, leaving clear traces behind, which have not been detected. In any case, it is remarkable that they uh, remained so intact and undamaged. After all, they are said to have sort of, uh, you know, twisted inside uh, 
Palmer's body as well. That's why they did so much damage and like going through, you know, pretty much every vital organ and like, you know, the spine and everything. They seem that they, at least one of them should have had a, a, a bit more tear on it. So to dispel, dispel any doubts, a closer examination could at least have been made of uh, whether the walls of the houses further away could possibly show any damage from possible shots. But this was never done. Yeah, and the police did not even bother to have a forensic doctor attend the reconstruction of the murder scene or to ensure that Lisbeth Palme's gunshot wound was examined by forensic experts, which would have been of great importance in obtaining information on technically important details, such as the killer's position, shooting distance, shooting angle, his height, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it would, in fact have been possible to have the bullet impact site scientifically calculated. And in this case, it was decided to deviate from the routines where the forensic examination should have been an integral part of a murder investigation. The bullets, like Mr. and Mrs. Palme's clothes, were later subjected to several different analyses. But this was way after the facts. When the bullets arrived at SQL in Linköping, Lang informed them that for some reason the bullets uh, would be forwarded to the BKA, that is the Bundeskriminalamt uh, in uh, Wiesbaden, and to the FBI in Washington. SQL was not allowed to keep the bullets for more than 24 hours. During this short time, they had time to measure bullet width, take photographs, and make various casts and lead deductions. Before a comparative examination of the two bullets was made, they were washed, which consequently considerably complicated the uh, subsequent forensic analysis. That is insane. Yeah. Like, why, why would they do that? Why would you wash it? Like, I even, I, it's, uh, I came across something like similar to that recently. Like, I found out uh, that. That's also a, a common thing, like in the British Museum. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, they're not uncovering murder uh, scenes, but you know, when they get, you know, uh, bowls and stuff, like you know, well, that they steal <laughs> from various places in the world. I mean, it's not just the British Museum that does this, uh, but you know, that they clean all the things. You know, aren't they interested? You know, they shouldn't. They be more interested in like if you find a, a vase, like what was inside the vase? You know. What, what, what's this idea about, you know, thinking, you know, that everything has to be cleaned? I don't know, like the, for, you know, when they're going to be, I don't know, that they will be stored better then or something. I don't know what could have been the motives behind doing this. No examination could therefore be made of whether there was uh, residue or fragments of blood or body tissue or textile fibers on the bullets, um, which means that technically, now, at this point, you can't even prove that those bullets were actually the ones that hit uh, Olaf and Lisbeth. I mean, you know, if you look at it objectively, they're just two bullets that people found on the street, but beyond that. So uh, <laughs> after traveling then halfway around the world, the bullets finally arrived back in Sweden, where SQL and the Swedish Museum of Natural History could continue their investigations uh, under less stress. The Laboratory for Isotope Geology carried out uh, a lead isotope analysis to find out whether the fuse particles from the Palmer's clothes uh, could show an elemental composition that corresponded to that of the fuse in the ammunition in question. Each production series is unique as the isotopic composition of different lead deposits is likely to differ from case to case. At SQL, it was Åke uh, Åbrink who interpreted the result of this analysis, which was carried out 15 months after the murder. He concluded that it showed that there was no difference between the bullets and the lead from the clothes. For this reason, he ruled out the possibility that the bullets could have been planted after the murder. But... This conclusion has not gone unchallenged. Uh, there's a guy called Mikael Jensen. He was a researcher at the Swedish Radiation Protection Institute, and he does not believe that a connection like this can be proven on the basis of the current test protocols. And um, there's another guy, an associate professor called Marcus. 
Torbjörn Sköld. Yes. He's from the Swedish Museum of Natural History. He's also skeptical um, about Obrink's uh, conclusions. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, it is precisely this uh, lead isotope test that constitutes the police's strongest argument for the two bullets having been used in the murder. One cannot exclude the possibility that the bullets and Mr. and Mrs. Palmer's clothes may have been in contact with each other uh, at some point during the long period between the murder and the lead isotope test. Which again, we wouldn't have needed a, a, you know, a lead isotope test had they not been cleaned. I, I've got to be honest, like I'm comfortable saying, yeah, these are probably the bullets that were fired at them. It's just the police do themselves no favors here. Yeah, it's uh, it's odd. I'm also unsure, actually, like how, what point would it have served, uh, you know, to, to plant the bullets there? Like if we were to, you know, do some speculation, I, I, I or if, you know, like, I, I'm pretty convinced, you know, that uh, the police, a lot of the, the fuck-ups aren't, you know, fuck-ups, you know, that they are deliberate uh, attempts to stall the investigation. Yeah. So, um. I mean, the the weapon was never found either, so it seems like you know that would be the first approach to make sure, yeah, you know that it's easy, uh, it's more difficult to tie somebody to, uh, well, to the event and to the act if you don't have a murder weapon. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I'm a little bit at uh, my wit's end to figure out why they would have planted uh, the wrong bullets at the uh, at the crime scene. I don't really have a good uh, theory about that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. Um, okay, do you want to talk about the ghost surveillance team then? As I've come to think of it, yeah, we should do that. This is creepy as fuck. Yeah, and I think this is a great turning point. Like, I mean, in in one's own sort of relationship with this case, like when you get the Palmer virus, I think you have to eventually step over this threshold. And, you know, make an opinion, <laughs> as you say, about this very creepy thing that is the walkie-talkie man. Because, yeah, either you, I mean, even like people who do, uh, like, for example, the, the people who did wrote the book Inside the Labyrinth, they don't like the talks. Uh, they don't like um, the theories about walkie-talkie men. They feel that, you know, that it ridicules the story, sort of. But I don't think so. I think, like, you need to open up almost with the walkie-talkie man somehow. Like there is something, I mean, if you take a conspiracy theory serious, like that there is a conspiracy, well, then it's not just enough to point out connections between people's personal life and stuff like that, right? There's going to be some logistical things on, you know, those, you know, people who are closer, you know, the hands-on people. What we mean by um, walkie-talkie men is in the days that followed the shooting, more troubling anomalies began to surface because at least 36 different witnesses have reported seeing these walkie-talkie men um, around the Palme's apartment in Gamlestan and the scene of the crime on Svierwegen as well. So the witnesses described police officers and civilians who later turned out to be off-duty cops behaving strangely in the area before and after the shooting, the investigative team were very quick to dismiss these accounts, you know, and officially they do not acknowledge this. They say that they looked into all this and they could find nothing of substance there, but we thought it was worth listing some of this stuff uh, exhaustively, you know. So before we begin here, the people that we'll be naming in this section, you might wonder why we're only using the first names, and that's just because that's how they appear in the police documentation and the, the books and the articles that have been written about this. 
So on the night of the murder, at 25 to 9, Inga gets off at the Gamlestan subway station on her way to work. And at that moment, she sees a man with a radio antenna sticking out of his jacket. Uh, He's walking on the same part of the street as her. And shortly afterwards, this man starts talking into the walkie-talkie. And Gamlestan is, as you will remember, the subway station where Olaf and Lisbeth gets on to Mm -hmm. go to the cinema uh, at the beginning of the night. Then, at uh, 2037, about 100 meters from the subway station, the same witness sees another man talking on a walkie-talkie, while Olof and Lisbeth Palme pass by in the direction of this subway station. They pass through the ticket barrier a few minutes later. 22 minutes to 9, Helena notices two men at Gamlestan subway station and gets the impression that they are watching someone. Then, at 20.39, one minute later, Per sees the Palme couple at the entrance to the subway station and also thinks that they are being followed, especially or specifically by a man with a dark complexion. He walks about 30 meters behind them. Four minutes later, Leela is standing in the subway car that Mr. and Mrs. Palme are boarding. Just before the doors close, a dark-skinned man in a dark jacket manages to get into the same carriage. The subway driver thinks it looks like two men are following Olaf Palme, and he also sees these men get off at the same stop as the Palme couple and follow them. The police firmly state that Palme could not have been followed by anyone on his way from his home in Gamlastan to the Grand Cinema on Sveabergen. Then at 11pm, Annika and Lena see a police car at high speed overtake a city bus about 900 meters from the cinema in question, and they drop off a man who gets on the bus. And then at 23.05 to 07, Maybrit and Marta see some 50 meters from the cinema when the film has just ended, three men rushing uncontrollably down Kungsgatan, parallel to the road that the Palme couple will be walking on. And these three men, I've read other descriptions of them, uh, which match pretty well those that we have of the Brabant killers which is just a wild little tidbit as to why they would be there. What? <laughs> what? So what, the, the killer, the giant, and the old man, That's these it. three guys look like them? Exactly, yeah. <sighs> you know what? I'm I'm going to put that on a shelf. I'm, yeah, we, we, we're not. I'm too, I'm too far gone with this shit, man. I, I can't. I just can't. I, what yeah, the some fuck? radioactive information. Honestly, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> need to put that away. Yeah. Um, okay. So then at 10 past 11, after the Brabant Killers cameo, uh, from a window on Johannesgarten, 300 meters to the east of the cinema, Ava was able to observe two men standing next to an idling car for about 20 minutes. Both were speaking occasionally into walkie-talkies. A police car came along and shortly afterwards, the two men disappeared. At about the same time, a car parked on Drottninggatan, 300 meters west of the Grand Cinema. Ingrid, watching from her apartment, was convinced that it was a police car and was surprised to see not two, but a single man sitting in the car, who, according to Ingrid, appeared to be talking on a walkie-talkie. After clearly pronouncing the words, Oh, over there, he quickly drives away from the scene. Ingrid also thinks she sees a four-digit number in the front window of the car, which she is sure ends in 20. Suspicion has fallen on inspector's car 1520-1520, which a few minutes after the murder was observed at the killer's escape route. Here, the investigation team claims that it was uh, a certain guard car and is satisfied with this, even though such cars do not usually have a number under their windshield, and that the investigative journalist Lars Boynes got hold of the guard in question, who stated that he was not at all in this place at that time. Then at 12 minutes past 11, Uh, Tommy sees a whole armada 
of police cars moving across the Tranenberg Bridge towards the city centre. No such movement of police cars is registered at the police communications centre, which indicates that they cannot have been ordered to any specific location. And the 2312 then, uh, this would mean that we're still... This is still before the murder, right? 20... Yeah. 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 So then, at 23.15, Christian sees two men with walkie-talkies at the junction of Regeringsgatan and David Bagaresgata. So at 17 minutes past 11, so it's two minutes later, Jerka is walking with his girlfriend on Adolf Friedrich Schergogata in the direction of Sviervegen, about 50 meters from that spot on Sviervegen, where the Palmes will pass a few minutes later. Yerka sees a man with a walkie-talkie who turns around and meets Yerka's gaze. Yerka recognizes him as a police officer who is known only in the files as T.P. So that's Tango Papa. At uh, 23.18, Alf sees a man who seems to be following the Palme couple on Sveavägen from a distance of 10 to 15 meters. And then at the same time, uh, the two Finnish women who I believe we mentioned in the first episode, uh, Katja and Pierjo, they are standing outside a furniture store on Sviervegen. The Palmers are then about 300 meters away, and the two girls had planned to take a commuter train to the Stockholm suburb where they live. Neither of them was wearing a watch at the time, and they had to ask someone uh, for the time. So in front of the Dekarima paint shop, uh, they see a man, and Katja walks up to him because she recognized him as a Finnish-speaking man that she'd met at the gym um, a little while earlier. And she addressed him in Finnish, but the man, uh, according to the girls, he seemed very nervous and he wouldn't talk to them. So Katja repeats her question, and then she hears a voice on a walkie-talkie say, here they come. And this guy replies in Finnish, I'm recognized, what should I do? And he's told to complete his mission. Um, the girls believe that he was carrying a gun inside his jacket and they find the situation extremely, you know, unnerving and strange. So they hurry away and shortly afterwards they hear a loud bang, which at the time they wanted to explain as the exhaust of a car. But the next day they conclude that it was Olaf Palme's killer that they'd met and recognized and they were terrified and decided to keep quiet about this entire thing. And they kept that vow of silence until the fall of 1992 when uh, one of the girls confided in a good friend what she'd experienced and thereafter they went to the police. And I think this is like one of the first uh, uh, witness reports of the walkie-talkie man where at least I turned a little bit. And when you get that again, like, um, you know, we're talking about this threshold, you either accept the walkie-talkie man uh, as, you know, not just being the nonsense of what, 36 different people on the same night. And then you have to start asking, obviously, other questions that, you know, why, why are there so many reports of uh, these people? So at 23.21, Roger and Sigge Sedegren are driving in their car towards the crime scene from where they hear two shots their progress seems to be deliberately blocked by a white Volvo. And then there are some interesting observations that were made after the murder. So at 25 past 11, two men walk towards the number 43 bus, which is 500 meters east of the crime scene. Uh, this is at the stop, Eriksbergsgarten. Uh, this could thus be the killer's escape route. One of them gets on the bus, but the other one stands at the front door for a long time and hesitates. Uh, he's carrying a grey-blue bag, similar to the one that a witness called Anna saw with the fleeing killer a few minutes earlier. Then he gets off the bus. It's not only the bus driver who notices the man's strange behaviour, uh, but also one of the passengers as well. He's a TV producer called Lars Krantz. Yeah, and that that is probably why this... Uh bus number 43 has become quite famous in uh, Palme lore in, yeah. in general uh, but uh, rather than getting in you know there are of course more walkie-talkie we didn't mention now 36 uh, you know various events right like there is a, a for example now in the new documentary by uh, uh, which is based on the uh, 
archives of Stieg Larsson and also in the book which that documentary is uh, based on. And so this is not the, the Netflix TV series, but a different one on HBO or Discovery, depending on yeah where you are in the world, I guess. Uh, in that one, they, they also bring up some other of the walkie-talkie reports, like, for example, a couple that were going to a concert, I believe, find themselves being told to not park uh, in a particular place. This is close to the crime scene. And a man in a walkie-talkie basically tells them not to park uh, where they were, you know, hoping to park. And then they later encountered even more walkie-talkie men in, in, in close proximity to, to this place as they start to try and look for another parking spot. It's, it's a, that's how I remember it. But yeah, there are loads and we can't go through all of them, obviously. It feels like there's way too many to dismiss. Yeah, there's something here. Yeah, there's definitely something here. And I think like the dismissal of it is also interesting because, you know, clearly uh, this... You know, the walkie-talkie lead, uh, considering also the involved policemen that we will, you know, you, you, we already mentioned that a few of these walkie-talkie men were identified as policemen or policemen or people sitting in police cars, etc., which, uh, you know, gives further room for thought why it would then be so ridiculous. Like, I'm not only saying that this is a threshold in the sense of, like, you know, I, you know how interested you are in this story but it's also a threshold because you know of the reaction that you are going to get because it's pretty much been implement implanted well maybe in, you know i'm a, of a different generation but in my parents generation you wouldn't you know there are two kinds of people the people who talk about the walkie-talkie people and the ones who don't right so it's like they really tried to make an effort to make it look like that you're a you know you're batshit crazy if you talk about walkie-talkie men you know, it was like, you know, it's the same as the, a, a tinfolia hat, uh, quite literally. I know we don't speak about tinfolia hat that much, but like walkie-talkie man has that sort of connotation. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think also, uh, what, what did I want to say? That uh, if we want to, you know, further understand uh, this, we can also see that once the so-called police lead then starts popping up this is one of the few leads that doesn't have that official title by the investigative group it never gets the title the police lead all the other leads you know like the uh, the 33 year old uh, Krista Pettersson uh, uh, the South Africa lead uh, you know the PKK trail the PKK lead exactly the, the list goes on they all get you know a title and a name but the, the police lead never gets such a title. It only appears in the secondary inquiry commissions of the police work that they are, you know, that it's called the police lead. And the thing is that everything that was uh, brought into the investigative group that was labeled the police lead was immediately handed over to the secret police. And, uh, uh, I mean, maybe that's a good thing if you were thinking that it's the public police that is the police lead, and then it's good that there's another apparatus that checks on, you know, another apparatus. But we have already suggested that maybe the police lead is actually about the secret police, which means, hmm, yeah, something else then. Some of these witnesses were literally harassed by the secret police uh, for for suggesting these things about the walkie-talkie men, and that's how they it became such a you know taboo topic. Uh, and uh, you know the Marxist-Leninist newspaper that does uh, start talking about it, uh, which is one of the first to push it as as a lead, uh, they are sued as well for. Uh, well, they do publish names of police officers, which, you know, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do, but nonetheless, you know, they are not only 
uh, sued. Uh, they are also harassed in the general press. You know, this is a Marxist, Leninist uh, newspaper. Obviously, it's not going to be read by everybody in this in 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 Sweden. It's a rather relatively small newspaper in comparison to the others. But they get you know, you know, trash talked by the other papers for following the police lead. It's only like twenty years later that this that becomes more of an acceptable thing uh, that there is a police lead. Well, not maybe twenty years later. I mean, you could say that it is accepted within certain circles from the beginning. But, you know, it takes time for it to become a more uh, agreeable uh, theory. And they push hard, push hard back against uh, this uh, this lead or the, the notion that this is a lead, sort of, yeah. I find this something that's really interesting and it repeats again and again and again, which is whenever there's spook involvement in something. You only ever seem to find that out like 20, 25 years later. But when you read news coverage at the time, like the contemporaneous coverage, there's always this very odd, tense, unsettling note to the way that the journalists approach it. In fact, it's just happened uh, this week. Have you heard about this boat in Italy that sank with all these Israeli and Italian intelligence agents on it? Oh, I, I, you know, I signed up recently to what what used to be a socialist Zionist newspaper. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hearts, right? H a a r t z. And I saw something about that in the title. I got a, an email, but I didn't pick. Yeah. I didn't open it up. But yeah, what, what was that? I mean, I have the article here from BBC News, and I'm sorry if we're getting off on a tangent here, but it's just to give you an idea of how these things are handled in the moment, you know. So, you know, the headline, Lake uh, Maggiore uh, boat accident, questions remain over spy deaths. The story of a boat that sank on a lake in Italy on 28th of May has elements of a spy novel. This is from the BBC. Uh, So immediately kind of... um, add in a slightly, an oddly light and jocular note to it by comparing it to a spy novel, you know, when people have died here. Right, right, like it's fictional. Yeah. yeah. Uh, four people tragically drowned on the picturesque and popular lake south of the Swiss Alps. One was a former agent from Israel spy agency, Mossad. Two were Italian intelligence officers. The fourth victim was a Russian woman. Now, what the story goes on to say <laughs> is that apparently, despite the weather forecast saying it was clear blue skies all day long. Um, The captain is saying that they went out on the lake and a storm blew up like over the boat. So yeah, if you can imagine that. (laughs) And capsized it and sank it, right? And the way that all the, certainly the the British media is reporting this, it's just uncritically. Like there's not even any Uh, additional commentary or anything. And it's- Yeah, yeah, very local weather. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell the journalists are really uncomfortable um, Mm -hmm. to be even thinking about this story. It unsettles them to think about it. And on top of that is the fact that the survivors of the the wreckage, uh, I can't remember how many people were on the boat in total, but the people who survived- grabbed their stuff from their hotel rooms and left immediately. So they've all gone now. Uh, The cops can't find a trace of them. And the ones that went to hospital, there are no records of them uh, left at the hospital. And, and And all these details don't fit journalists' preconceived notions of how the world and how news about the world is reported so they don't know what to do with it and you can just sense this they're not happy about having to even discuss this stuff much less entertain you know the idea that maybe there was something else going on here so wait 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 was it uh, was it lake garda no not uh, which lake was it lake maggiore oh maggiore uh, yeah that's a bigger one right like garda is quite yeah, smaller yeah yeah Um, I mean, I guess it's possible that some kind of unexpected weather event happened really quickly and then blew away, but I don't know, man. But it's just, I I just bring it up mostly because it's interesting, you know, that the discomfort that journalists obviously feel and because they tend to be the mouthpieces or, you know, certainly like set the agenda for what's acceptable to talk about. Yeah, because they are also, you know, like, I mean, there's one thing to do the... the, the thing, right? Like there's one thing to organize uh, 
the killing of a prime minister, but you know, to make sure that it is constantly in a sort of retroactive fashion being described in the way that you want it to. Like now, now where you know it, you you are dealing with a lot more people, and the, you know the way that has to be organized. As you say, you know they feel very uncomfortable writing. I mean, they're not all in on it, but they're being told by somebody to put it in a particular way. A lot of it is unconscious, like ideology reproduces itself unconsciously because, well, they have a view of the world, and uh, so they, you know, they, they'll they'll write and uh, be a useful. Uh, well, because they understand it's in their career interests to accept the official narrative, you know. Um, yeah. Which right. is why, so when a new Palme happens or whatever, when that intrudes on the, the very careful sort of fictions they're trying to stretch over the reality of something that happened, uh, it's where you get this very unsettling dissonance, I would say, in the way that they cover it. Yeah. And we know, like we know from hindsight, like uh, with Gladio, for example, in Italy, that, uh, I mean, it's one thing to kill, you know, a member of the parliament, but... Uh, okay, in the case of uh, of Olof Palme, surely the 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 very fact that he was removed uh, had a lot of uh, political effects as well. But sometimes, and you know, probably most of the times, it's not so much about you know that particular person. I mean, it is sending a message, but it is also this uh, you know that the narrative is the primary function of it as a psyop, right? Like, and this is what. Uh, what is usually called then the uh, a strategy of tensions, right? To sort of, uh, I mean, fuck, I, you went to Italy quite recently, right? And and uh, I was there. I worked in the on the countryside in Tuscany on a uh, apple cider um, farm, like maybe three years ago. And I remember in Rome, you know, it's it's an odd sight to you know have people with machine guns standing in the subway and stuff like that, and it's and like you know it's really like it's been like state of emergency in in Italy for like I don't know a generation, two generations, like it's just everyday life now. Yeah, I'm planning at some point an episode about not so much about like historical events, but actually hammering out what the strategy of tension is and what it isn't, and what Gladio is and what it isn't because online you see both of those terms just thrown around so casually you know to describe everything and it's like some jerk off in america who's pissed off that he can't get laid walking into a school and shooting it up is not the fucking strategy of tension so for anyone listening to this because we're in euro noir mindset now right if you use strategy of tension to describe a school shooting you know what that is that's cultural appropriation of <laughs> us as Europeans, and we won't stand for it anymore, right? We will not have it. We will not have it, right? The strategy of tension at base is that you commit a series of violent outrages that sufficiently scare a population that they demand an authoritarian shift to the right as a way to bring in a government that will crack down on the left. And the whole thing is basically um, stage managed, to, you know, up to a certain point. But you can also kind of have it run itself by just giving Nazis and all kinds of terrible people money and guns and letting them go off and do their own thing. Um, but the end result is always that authoritarian shift to the right in governance. So, yeah, sorry. I went off on a bit of a rant there. but um, sort of, uh, No, no, I think, uh, I mean... And it's not a rant. And I think, you know, it's not just us saying this, you know, like you can go back to Carl Schmitt, for example, you know, the ARC jurist of the NSDAP. And he he lays it out quite clearly, you know, in, in his political theology, what he calls political theology. You know, it you know, we're on another dimension of how, you know, a state is meant to function you know they have no concern like for democracy for example you know like and they hate liberals almost more than than uh, than communists do and so they you know he knows that the caesar like for there to be a caesaristic you know sort of class collaborative collaborative state uh you know a higher more purer uh uh, dimension of corporatism for that to function i mean the caesar almost have to sort of cause himself to exist you know like an eternal flame and so that 
you know, the, the state of emergency asks for the Caesar, but it is only the Caesar which can call out a state of emergency. I mean, this circular logic is embedded into it, not because Schmidt is making a mistake or something, but, you know, he knows how we can, you know, make the conditions, set the necessary conditions in place that people begs for this fucking circle. And that is, you know, this is essential to a strategy of tension, right? It's it's like a very hard-headed political tactic that there's good reason to believe has been deployed multiple times in Italy and elsewhere as well. Um, I mean, we'll be getting into some stuff uh, about Britain later on in the year where I think there's grounds to believe that a similar strategy was deployed here as well. Um, and I think, yeah, in the case of Olaf Palme, we're looking at the same thing. Next time, we're going to look at the PKK, the spies, the major suspects, cop voodoo, and dark intrigue, and lurking behind everything is the sword, the network of networks, the the place where we began our entire journey way back in 2019. We are building something here, beautiful, and all the pieces matter. But until then... And as ever, sub and show some love on the Patreon. Leave a rating and review on iTunes, if you haven't already. Check out the return of The Repressed. And don't get captured. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>